All right, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. I ask you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. So thankful for the opportunity we've already had this morning to worship. I'm coming up, preaching the third time. We'll see if I get it right this time. And you're all here for it, so that's good. I want to remind you that uh, today is a special day. Our student ministry have over about 125 students that are on their way back from their fall retreat today. So they're not with us. We want to pray for them as they're traveling back. And hopefully they get back on time so you as parents don't have to wait too long for them. But we are also praying that the Lord did great and wondrous things there amongst them. So we're excited to hear what he has done. Acts chapter 3 starting in verse 11, we'll be picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, We're discussing how the Lord builds his church, looking at the book of Acts and how this happens. And we see that the Lord builds his church through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So Peter and John in Acts 3 are headed to the temple to pray, and they come to the one who at the gate, the lame man who was lame from birth, who was sitting there and had to be carried there every single day. And instead of this time giving silver or gold, some coin that he's begging for, Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I freely give to you. The name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the lame man's legs were made strong. He got up and the scripture tells us he began walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. And from that, we see the testimony of others. As verse 10 says, they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And so now, as we pick up here in verse 11, you see the one who was lame from birth, who had been healed, clinging to Peter. And Peter takes this opportunity to bear witness, which is exactly what Jesus had told him to do in chapter one. You were to be my witnesses. So Peter now is going to bear witness as to what has happened to this one. Let's read together, picking up there in verse 11, going through the end of the chapter of Acts chapter three. Scripture says, while he clung to Peter and John and all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people this way, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, 
The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant of God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together, even as we've done all morning to sing praises to you and worship you. We're thankful for this moment right now in this place. God, we're thankful for the, the worship and singing that we've already done. We're thankful for the baby dedication that we're able to be a, a part of, God. And I just pray, Father, that, that in everything, only Christ Jesus would be exalted. That in everything this morning, it's only the name of Christ that will be remembered above all other names. So God, we ask that you take our time and you bless it for your glory, even now as we look to your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we discussed last week, the Lord builds his church by, the, by transforming lives through the power of Jesus Christ. And so the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with lives that have been changed and everyone who has been transformed by Jesus has a testimony. You have maybe heard that language used before. What's your testimony? Tell us your story. How did you come to know Christ? Where were you from? What was it? How did it happen? We all have these testimonies, and all of our testimonies are different. You can take mine, for example, and compare it to yours. I'm a, a preacher's kid. There was not a time in my life that I remember where I did not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was taught to me when I was young. I learned it at church through mission friends and sunbeams and all these other Southern Baptist things where we grow up and we hear it. I was the master of the flannel graph. I don't know if y'all remember those or not. All of us here have different stories. I heard the gospel my whole life, and then one Sunday I came to my dad, who was pastor, and I said, Dad, I, wanna, uh, I, I trust Jesus with my life. I want to be baptized. And like all good preachers, my dad said, No, you don't, son. I said, yes, I do, Dad. And he asked me all the questions I'm, I need to ask. And then he made me go to five different men in our church to go through all of them to make sure that his son wasn't doing this just because he was the pastor or just because he thought he was supposed to do it. I had to tell him how the gospel worked. I had to tell him about my own sin. I had to do all of those things. And then finally, of course, my dad said, I believe you, and we're ready. And there I was baptized, and since then, I like the song we sang in our second service, you know, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. There's been times in my life where I may have moved away, but God in his grace has always kept me near him, always kept me with him. And at the age of 19, he said, son, I've prepared you for this and called me into the ministry. And here I am today. Our testimonies probably in this room, there's not many like that, if any. Many of you have different stories. Many of you came from different places. It was a friend who told you the gospel, a grandmother who told you the gospel. You came out of difficult situations. You, you had to learn things sometimes the hard way. Sometimes it came easy for you. All of these things in your life, your stories to get to where you are today, if you're a child of God, they're all in here different. Everybody's got a different one. That's the beauty of his church. That's the beauty of what God does is he brings different people from different places, but all clinging to the same thing. 
all clinging to the same thing. And while our stories are different, what we are all doing in this room is clinging to the same truths of the gospel. And I believe that's what we see here in Peter. And like this imagery at the beginning in verse 11 of this lame man who clung to Peter, he's holding fast to Peter. This lame man could have ran the streets. He could have gone and told his mama. He could have gone and told his grandma. He could have let everybody know that's been carrying. Look, I can walk now. But he knew what Peter had, he could not let go of. Remember Peter's words, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I freely give, Jesus Christ his name. And this lame man knew that the most important thing with her him is to not let that go. And so what is it for us? For us who are children of God, has been transformed by the power of God, what is it that we cling to? What is it that we hold fast to? And here in our passage, I want to see a few things that I believe Peter brings up as he bears witness to what happened with this lame man. First, we must be astounded by the works of God. We must be astounded by the works of God. As it tells us in, in verse 10, having seen this man lame from birth, being healed and now walking and leaping and praising God, it says that everybody there was filled with wonder and amazement. Look at this that's going on. Look at this incredible thing that happened. They saw the work of God and they were with wonder and amazement at it. But that work needed an explanation. They needed to know what took place. And this is why Peter is going to be a witness. He's going to tell them what happened to this man. They're utterly astounded, it says. As he clings to Peter, all the people utterly astounded, runs together. They come to where Peter and the man is, and they're like, tell us what happened. What is going on? Peter quickly points away from himself. Notice what Peter says. As they run to Peter, the man's clinging to him. Men of Israel, why do you wonder or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Peter wants to make it clear, it is not me that has done this for this man. I have not done this by my power. I've not done it by my strength. I've not done it by my name. There was no magic trick that went on. It is going to be Christ who has done this. And so what you are amazed at is what God has done, Peter's saying. Now for all of us, for all of us, we often don't have the best understanding of what's going on in our life. We need some help, especially when it comes to scriptures. I'm reminded of, of the widow's son at Nain. You may not remember that story. It's in Luke chapter 7. But this widow who, who had a one son left, and he died, and they're having the funeral, and they're going through the city, and Jesus shows up to the funeral. And if you remember, Jesus, having compassion, walked up and touched the casket, and the man sat up. Now, if you were to ask the man what happened, he probably would say something like, well, I don't know. I was sleeping, and I just woke up. You know, he was dead before he sat up, right? I, I, something happened. I, I felt my energy come back, and I just sat up in the midst of it. What are y'all doing? That's probably something he would say. Somebody had to come to him and say, let me tell you what happened to you. This man named Jesus came into the town, and he raised you up again. He wasn't the, 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 the one who was dead and being raised up was not the best understanding of his situation. It was somebody had to come and tell him, here's what's happened. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians. When he says, you were dead in your trespasses, you were uh, dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive, right? Paul is telling us, here's what's happened to all of us who have been saved. God has taken you who were dead in your trespasses and sin and made you alive together with Christ. And you do not need to get over that. In other words, be astounded by it. 
Be astounded by what he does. Be astounded by his works. Be amazed at what he does. When we see God working in hearts and lives of people, it should always astound us because God is still in the business of raising the dead to life. God is still in the business of of, of doing wondrous and glorious things before our very eyes, and we do not need to get inoculated to those things. I know that's his bad time of year to say this after the last couple years. But that idea of inoculation is the sense that we get a little bit of something, therefore we get over the big part, right? And so it is sometimes with the works of God. We see it, we see things happening, and we start getting over it and like, oh, that's no big deal. That's not any, that's no, that's no big thing, but not those who trust in Christ. We should see the works of God and still be astounded that he works and that he moves, that he's active, and that he's working in our lives. We are astounded when we see it in others. We're astounded when we see it in our own life. Peter points to this. Like this man who clung to him. This man knew he could not let him go. Like Jacob, whenever he wrestled with the Lord at night, and the Lord said, let me go. He said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Like Moses, who's in the wilderness, and he said, I'm not going anywhere until you go first, Lord. And if you go, I'll go. If you stay, I'll stay. Or like David, who says, whom do we have in heaven but you? Where else do we turn? Though our flesh and our heart may fail, you are our joy and our strength forever. I got nowhere else to go. Or even like Peter himself in the Gospels, when Jesus said, are you going to leave me, Peter? And Peter says, who else do we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. All throughout the scriptures, when the Lord God reveals himself, his people cling to him and hold fast to him. And that's what we see here in this. We cling to the Lord. And this passage really is what we must cling to, what we must hold fast to, which brings us to number two. We are encouraged by the promises of God. We're astounded by the works of God. We're encouraged by the promises of God. Here, as Peter begins, he said, it's not me, but let me tell you who it is. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Here, Peter is making something very clear. He's using this title of God that we see in the Old Testament because he's pointing back to the promises of God that are found in Scripture. You see, God appeared to Abraham and gave him some promises that he will make him great, that he will give him a land, and he will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse you, and all the nations will be blessed through him. He gave Abraham those promises. And then he appeared to Isaac, Abraham's son. And he he reiterated those same promises he gave to Abraham. Just like I gave Abraham, I'm doing them through you. Then he appeared to Jacob. And he reiterated again, just like I gave to your grandfather and your father. Now I'm doing them through you. And after that, Jacob teaches and tells the promises of God to his children who become the tribes of Israel. And it's passed down. These three men are the the patriarchs, if you will, of the promises God has reiterated them. So when Peter says, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, he's saying the God who made promises long ago is the God who's keeping those promises right now. He promised to redeem his people, and now his redemption is on display. And it's not his people are not just found in the, uh, in, in the Jews, as he says. His people are found from all nations, for all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed, he says down in verse 25. All of them, the promises of God are coming true. But not only that, he says down here, talking about Moses in verse 22. Moses, he, he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses, who, who well, led the people of God out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but he was told he can't enter into the promised land for his own sinfulness, and he's getting to the end, and he tells the people, don't you worry about me, right? He says, 
The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the earth. In other words, Moses is saying, there's one coming like me, but yet he's greater than me. Moses, the deliverer of God's people, there's one coming like him. And this one's not going to deliver you from slavery in Egypt. This one's going to deliver you from the slavery and bondage of your sin. This deliverer is greater. There's one greater than Moses. But not only that, all of the prophets, it says in verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, all that came after him are proclaimed these days. And you are the inheritors of the promises of God throughout all of Scripture and the prophets. It's found in Christ. And what does that teach us then? First of all, it teaches us that we cling to the fact that in a world of uncertainty, we can be sure that Jesus has come to fulfill the promises of God. In other words, God has kept his promise. We can be certain in a world of uncertainty. And the worrisomeness of this world that creeps into our lives dissipates in the face of a God who has never lied and has always kept his promises before us. Be encouraged by that. Be strengthened by that. Know that to be true and don't lose sight of it even when the worries come, even when the difficulties come. Cling to the promise that God has never failed and he has never failed in delivering Jesus Christ, his son, to redeem you. Those are his promises, he says. And in the midst of those promises, he tells us Jesus is the servant who has come to do this, to bring this about. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. And it's at that point then that we are, number three, confronted by the truth of God. Confronted by the truth of God. Immediately, he says, the God who hath made the promises has now brought his son, Jesus, the one who fulfilled the promises. And in verse 13, right in the middle of that verse, his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He, 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 turned, he says, the God has delivered on his promise and brought us Jesus, and you delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate was going to let him go, but you said no. Not only that, as Peter confronts us with this truth, he comes up and he, he takes it even further. He says in verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one, the one who was perfect, the one who was out sin. This language of holy and righteousness is testimony to the, the Messiah that would come. He would be the holy and righteous one. And he came and you denied him, it says. In fact, you cried out for a murderer. Surely the people who were listening to Peter, it hadn't been a few weeks before. Maybe some of them were in the place that were there present when Pilate is trying to let him go. And instead of letting him go, they say, no, give us Barabbas, a murderer. We'd rather have a murderer than the holy and righteous one of God. We'd rather have him. And not only that, they screamed out, crucify him. And that's what he says next. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. There, here he is. He says, this holy and righteous one, you wanted a murderer instead. This one who was the author of life, you wanted him dead and you killed him. In other words, this wasn't an accident. This wasn't manslaughter in some way. This was you putting him to the cross. You wanted him. You cried out, crucified him. Peter confronts them with their own sinfulness and their own rejection of the one who fulfills the promises. Peter does not hide what happens but he stands boldly in front of them to confront them because the only way Peter knows that his sin can be dealt with is through confronting their sin. 
And Peter brings it out. And so should we, I think, be constantly reminded of our own sinfulness. Be constantly reminded. You say, well, Josh, that sounds like this depressing. My goodness, who wants to be reminded of that? But my friends, we remember that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we were there that day, most assuredly without Christ, we too would be calling for Barabbas or saying, crucify him. For look at our life before we gave ourselves to Christ himself. We were rejecting him, turning from him ourselves, not wanting to follow after him. All have sinned and the wages of that sin is death, the scripture says. And even after we're saved, we should be reminded of of what God saved us from, right? I mean, ultimately, that's what he's saying. You were dead and now God has made you alive. You were in your sins, and now God has freed you from your sins. You were lost, and now he's found you. You were blind, and now you see. You were lame by the gate, and now you can walk again. You were deaf, and you cannot. Now you cannot. You can hear. All of those things, God has transformed you by his name, by his glory. You were a sinner, helpless and hopeless, and did not deserve God's grace, but he has bestowed it and given it to you. We never get over that. That's what the scriptures tell us. He says, if you say you love God in John, 1 John, you say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. But his commandments are not a burden to us. They're our joy. How is it that the commandments of God become a joy to us? They become a joy because we realize we're not saved by keeping his commandments. We're saved because he loved us when we were unlovable. We're saved because he saved us and came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're saved because he found us even when we were turning away from him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're saved because of what he has done even when we did not deserve it. And in that now, we cling to Christ and love him and surely we want to follow him and obey him because we have found Christ and he has found us. That's what it's about. And so we never get over the fact that I was a sinner and we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. I wake up every morning, I am a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. And it's because of what Christ Jesus has done and the fact that his mercy is new for me every single morning. It's because of that I wake up and so yet I'm a sinner. I have been saved by the name of Christ. I will follow him today. We preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And in doing that, we are constantly, number four, pointing to the Savior of God. We're constantly pointing to the Savior of God. This one whom you killed, Peter says. This one you killed the author of life, God raised from the dead. This one whom you killed, God raised up. The author of life, death could not hold him. The author of life has conquered death. This one whom the prophets foretold has fulfilled the word of the prophets. This one who Moses spoke of has now come and shown he's delivered us out of death and sin and brought us to the other side. This one who is the servant of the Lord, as it says, the servant Jesus. Twice in our passage it says this, drawing attention to the prophets themselves. Isaiah. Isaiah has a stretch of passages called the servant songs. This one who will come and be a servant unto the Lord. And this servant unto the Lord will be the one who delivers and redeems his people. And most assuredly, there's a a passage that you all know, or maybe you have heard, if you don't know where it's from, but it's from Isaiah 53, the last of the servant songs in Isaiah. And in Isaiah 53, this servant who comes in the name of the Lord, it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. 
This servant who has come, Jesus, not only has fulfilled the promises of God, not only he's the author of life that's overcome death, this servant who has come, Christ Jesus, is the one who will bring redemption to his people by he himself dying on the cross and taking our sin. He takes it. It's by his uh, stripes that we are healed. He was wounded for our iniquity, pierced for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. It's Christ who has done this. Jesus is the Savior and the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He's the servant of the Lord that has brought redemption to his people. This is who he is, Peter says. And because of that, we should never forget. We should never forget him. Always point to him and cling to him, Peter says. Brings us to number five. We're called to respond to the gospel of God. Here at Taylor's, we always talk about the gospel We have the four points of the gospel. God, man, Christ response. God is holy, righteous creator. Man is sinful and rejects him. Christ Jesus has come as savior to redeem man. And now how do you respond to that truth? Here we see that laid out in Peter's sermon. God, the author of life, the the, the one who made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has come, but yet you rejected him. You went away from him, and you called out for his death, not for life. You didn't follow him, and yet he died for your sins and was raised again so that you can have life. That's who he is, and now you must respond to that truth. Anytime the gospel is proclaimed, response has to happen. It's by necessity has to happen. You either respond by turning away, you either respond by being indifferent, or you respond by following him and trusting in him. And here, as Christ Jesus is presented, Peter makes no hesitation to offer this Christ to respond to him. Here is found in the sermon, in verse 19. Starts back at 17. Now, brothers, I know you act in ignorance as did all your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. This call to repentance does not go without any basis here. In fact, we find the basis in the text itself. Look back up to verse 16. As Peter explains what happened to this man who was lame from birth, He says, and his name, speaking of Jesus, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health. In other words, it's the faith that's happened. What's happened here for this man is he's trusted in Jesus in the name of Jesus by faith. That's what happened. Faith. And then therefore, you see that as the example. It is faith that has come, and that faith has made this man whole. In fact, it says that he is perfect health in the presence of you all. It is faith. Trusting in him by faith. Believing that he is the author of life. Believing that he is the fulfillment of the promises. Believing that he is the Messiah who came, suffered, and died, and rose again. Believing by faith in those things. But faith never goes by itself. It always goes with repentance. You see, when we turn to Jesus to cling to him, we've got to turn away from sin and let it go. You can't hold on to sin and hold on to Jesus at the same time. You can't hold on to these things and and hold on to Christ here as one big holy hug. It doesn't work that way. You see, where faith comes, repentance must follow after it. And how do we seek for repentance? We repent of our sins. But let me get you to understand this a little bit deeper. 
That, that may be easy for some of us. We always, when we get caught doing something, some deed, we, we're sorry for it, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. We're sorry, and we can even be sorry that we did it. We can even be sorry that we did those things. So sometimes when we say we will repent of our sins, it points to the idea that we're just repenting of, of what we get caught about, right? But what Peter calls us to do is repent not of just of our sins, but of our sin. And you may think, Josh, this is a, a, you're, you're kind of splitting hairs, but what I mean by that is not just the fact that we commit wrong things, but the fact that we are sinners by nature of who we are. The fact that we love sin, our sin has found us out. Our sin is what causes us to sin, if you know what I mean. And so by nature, we're children who want these things. So we don't just repent of what the deeds we've done. We repent of the fact that we love sin, that we want it, that we follow after it, that we pursue it. We repent of that. He says you've got to turn away from all of it. If you're going to cling to Jesus, you've got to let go of that sin. By faith, you trust that he is the one who has come by faith, you know he's the answer to the promises of God. By faith, you know he's the author of life. By faith, you know God raised him from the dead. By faith, you know all of these things to be true. So let go of all that other stuff and cling to him. That's the response Peter calls them to. And if you cling to him, if you have faith and repent in the Lord Jesus Christ, then sixth and finally, you will be blessed by the gift of God. Notice what he says. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back one, that your sins may be blotted out. Ultimately, your sins can be forgiven. And here he's not just talking about sweeping them under the rug. He's not just talking about writing them in a different book and putting them somewhere. He's not just talking about some, some thing of saying, oh yeah, just some cursory glance that your sins are forgiven. No, he uses a specific language here. He says they can be blotted out. In other words, you can't find them anymore. You can't, they're not in another book in a different place. They're not under the rug, haven't been swept. They have been dealt with finally and completely by the Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ himself on the cross. He took your sins, he put them to death, and he conquered them. Therefore, they're not to be found anymore. They're not to be seen anymore. It is Christ who has ended your sin if you trust by faith in him and turn from it. It is Christ who has blotted them out. Nobody can find them. Your record is clear. The righteousness of Christ becomes yours. He's blotted them out. What a blessing that is. Your greatest need is that your sins be forgiven. I've said this a thousand times. Your greatest need is that your sins be forgiven. And that lame man who was laying by the gate, you may think his greatest need was to have his legs uh, healed up so he can walk. Peter said, that's not it. That was only demonstrating the fact that the same God who can heal these legs is the same God who can forgive you of your sins. He's got the power to do it. He's got the power to, have you ever thought about the fact that that lame man who was, who was laid there by the gate, who was raised up, he lived happy, his head healthy, but he, surely he died. In fact, it tells us that, that all of us will death. He appointed a man to live once and then face death. Surely he had to die again, right? And come, we see this. Obviously the scripture knows it, but what, what do we know? That healing of the legs gives out in death. But Christ Jesus has overcome death by washing away our sins, by blotting them out, and the wages of them have been paid in full in Christ. And so that lame man who was healed just got a taste of glory himself, only to be realized upon death. That's what he says next. He says, not only your sins be blotted out, 
but that you may, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not only your sins be forgiven, the Lord will give you rest. And how will he give you rest? Because he's going to be with you. He hadn't saved you to leave you. He saved you to be with you. The Spirit comes in Acts 2. It dwells within the people of God, and now he's within us. We have him. God did not save us and leave us to run up and down the street and talk about all these other things. He saved us to be with us, so we cling to him as he's come. And that being with us is, is the fact that we will be refreshed. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. That rest is found when we repent and believe by faith in the true Son of God. Third and finally, he says, this Lord may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Your sins will be blotted out. You'll be refreshed and rested in Christ. And he is preparing something for you where he will restore all things. You see, salvation comes with this glorious gift of eternal life. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I come back, it'll be ready. And so we live every single day knowing that the, the day, the best day here on earth is the worst it'll ever be for us. Because the children of God, it only gets better. It only gets better when we're there because the Lord God is creating a place for us that is better, better than all we can imagine or know. The Lord God is burying a place. And even as it gets sweeter every day that we go by here, it'll only get sweeter finally and completely when we see him face to face. And everything that was wrong will be made right again. And there's no lame people laying by the gate in heaven because in heaven all of us have been restored and refreshed. And in this we rejoice. In this we rejoice. And he says, here's the blessings of God. You think that this is all about what you can give. Look at what God's given you. He's given you his son. Even when you rejected him, he still was raised up. And now you can still know him. Repent and trust by faith in him. And you get all the blessings of God. Your sins will be forgiven. His presence will be with you and refreshing. And he will restore you to eternal life one day. That's what we look forward to. And that's why Peter says, cling to that. Hold fast to that. Everybody in this room is clinging to something. You're all holding on to something. You're holding on to something in the sense that this is what you need to get you through the day. It's what you need to get through life. What I'm telling you is if you're not holding on to Jesus, you're just holding on to a paper counterfeit savior. One who cannot produce the promises that it makes. One who writes a check that he cannot cash. Only Christ Jesus has made promises and kept every single one of them for you. So don't cling to anything else but cling to Christ. That's the key. Peter says this is what it's about. As he interprets this before, you all come from different places and from different testimonies. But every single one of you must be clinging to Christ. That's what his call is for us today as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us in our sin, but you have sent your Son, the great Savior of the universe, who died for us, raised again, reigns for us, and now through your word and through your promises, you have come. And so, God, may everyone here this morning not be clinging to anything that cannot deliver the promises it makes. But may every person here be clinging to Christ Jesus, the only one who is true, the only one who can save, 
the only one who can redeem them from their sins. May they cling to him by turning from their sins and trusting in him by faith. And Father, just as your word tells us you're coming back for us, and the ones you will come back for are the ones who are clinging to Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. So God, I pray that no one in this room will be called empty-handed. I pray that no one in this room today, Father, will be caught holding on to something that cannot save them. But God, I pray that every single person here will be found clinging to Christ Jesus. And in clinging to him, they will have joy of life eternal. Father, help us all in these things. Help us all. Even as we close, I'll be standing here at the front. If you are not clinging to Christ today, but today's the day you want to hold fast to him, I'll be standing here. Others would love to speak to you about it. Come forward. We'd love to talk to you. Joining our church, being a part of a church that seeks to, to, to proclaim the name of Jesus that transforms the lives of others, we would love for you to do that. I'll be standing here. Let's stand together and sing.